This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to another installment of Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade in Christian Higher Ed. Why Those Meddling Kids? Well, you remember Scooby-Doo, right? Well, I'm hoping if Gen Z is listening to this, you you still know about Scooby-Doo. They would have this entire episode where they were trying to figure out the mystery. And at the end, they would unmask the culprit and they would say, and I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids kids. Well, now we have those meddling kids at Christian colleges and universities, these these students who have the audacity, the unmitigated gall to want to see racial justice and racial progress and expect their colleges and universities to help in that effort. So we are fighting misinformation with accurate information, lies with truth, and that's what brings us to this series. I am so thrilled that you will get acquainted with my next guest, Sheila Wise Rowe. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> well, this is a critically important conversation. I sense that people are going to be healed and freed by listening to you. And I want to make sure that we get as much time in with that conversation as possible. So for those of you us who don't have the privilege of knowing you like I know you. Tell us a little bit about your professional background and about your work now. Yeah. So I uh, have a background in counseling psychology, and I have been involved in ministry, counseling, spiritual direction in the U.S., primarily in the Northeast, in Boston, um, but also in South Africa and in Paris, France. So I've been around for quite a while, (laughs) working with diverse populations um, from children to seniors. I love the international flavor and flair that you can bring to the conversation. Uh, So feel free to incorporate that right now, I mean, as we go along. Um, So... Listen, I've gotten accused of being a, a quote unquote CRT apologist, yeah. which is funny to me because I've never formally studied the theory and I know most of us haven't. Uh, but with that in mind, we've all had to become you know, somewhat conversant in this theory because of this crusade against it. What do you think is important to know or to clear up about critical race theory? Well, you know what? As I've said, I have been practicing for a number of years, and it's interesting that this has only come to the fore, like over the past four or five years um, under the prior administration, that suddenly CRT became an issue. And the reality, as someone who's worked in multiple settings, from secular setting schools, uh, colleges, uh, hospitals, you name it, I... And I'm telling you, the reality is CRT is irrelevant to people on the ground. It's a non, it's not an issue. It's not discussed. Um, The reality is that those of us who are practicing, who are literally on the ground working with the people in the communities, we are seeing the, the collateral damage and the literal damage 
that has come from racism that we've experienced in America as Black, Indigenous, and other people of color. That is a reality on the ground. And so for me, and I often, Jamar, I'm given, uh, someone asks me this question, <laughs> generally in, in every interview about CRT and what do I feel about it? And I don't go there. And partly because um, I know like the, the on the ground pain that people are experiencing because of racism, the racial trauma that's inflicted. And I'm not giving credence or time or the time of day to nonsense. Because the people in the communities are there and the people in their families, in their schools, they are not dealing with this. What is painful, though, is the way in which CRT has been used to avoid dealing with the facts of history. Um, and this is not, the, the libraries are littered with books that talk about what has happened in the past. And so this denial of the past and its continual impact on our lives um, is is disturbing on a minor level. Um, it is traumatizing, uh, and and I would say that it's unbiblical. This avoidance of the past and not wanting to look at it, and I I firmly believe that you know if we look through scripture, there is a a, a sense of the Lord calling us to remember things, even bad things, even difficult things. And I firmly believe as a clinician that in order for us to heal. We have to look at that past and know, okay, what what is God, what has he done? What is he doing? What does he want to do um, in light of all of that? And so denying it under the guise of CRT or whatever else is, is just not going to be help, helpful or healing to anybody. Well, you know that as a historian, I say yes and amen to everything you said about the importance of history, about the danger of denying our honest history. You also said something really important around what's happening on the ground. Like this isn't a conversation that real people are are having. This is what, you know, talking heads on the news are saying. This is what is happening in the social media realm. But you deal with actual hurting people. So let's transition there right now. You wrote a book called Healing Racial Trauma, which I highly recommend to everyone. Go grab your copy. Can you help us just define or explain what is racial trauma? How does that differ from other kinds of trauma? Yeah. Well, you know, the reality is that probably most of us have experienced some level of trauma. However, with racial trauma, it really is this way in which as as people of color, Black, Indigenous, and others, we've experienced racism, and sometimes it's interpersonal. It's between us and another person, but oftentimes it's systemic. And so there are ways in which racism is baked into systems, and systems are run by people. And so there are people who are perpetuating this. Um, and so we've seen that with COVID. We've seen how it's disparity, the disparity in treatment, the disparity in caseload um, in communities of color. Um, we've seen it historically in things like the Tuskegee, the syphilis experiment, the ways in which um, Black folk were used as experiments. Um, we see it on, on, in terms of how policing is done in communities of color. Uh, we've seen it in terms of what doors and access is open or closed. Um, and those are just a few. 
But the result of that is that what they, when they look at trauma, they look at big T trauma and little T trauma. And so big T traumas are something huge, like a car accident or something. Smaller T traumas are things that, you know, maybe it's a loss, a loss of some sort. Um, it could be loss of relationship. Um, uh, little T trauma, technically being pulled over by police officers should be little T trauma. However, it's not. Um, what the research has shown, and this is trauma in general, that multiple little t, little t traumas actually accumulate over time. And what you have, it has much more damage than some big, huge event. And so what we're seeing is that whether it's students on campus or people in the community, these little things just add up. It's just, it's not one time that someone's pulled over. It's 20 times. It's 40 times. It's not one time that you're, you're tailed by security in the mall. It's like every time you go to the shopping. Um, there are ways in which these microaggressions um, do such damage that um, in some ways it can feel like, what's the big deal? And oftentimes that's the message. But when you think about having to navigate through life and having these multiple incidents happening over and over and over again, that's exhausting. That's damaging. It's not only emotionally damaging, it causes physical harm as well. And, and so racial trauma impacts us, not just in the present, but we're also carrying generational trauma. So where, yes, it does go back as a black person, it goes back to the enslavement of, of our ancestors. Um, and other groups, it's, it's similarly, they've experienced trauma, they're carrying that because of the trauma does damage on our families. And then we, because we're raised in certain families and we're coming from a certain ethnicity, culture, we're, we also inherit some of that baggage as well. And then it's then on top of that, we're dealing with the day-to-day -day ways in which racism rears its head in all spheres. And it's not just medicine and it's not just education and policing. It's, um, it's all housing. Um, it's, it's about monuments. Um, you know, how are, how is dominance presented? All of those things give messages that say who is in charge and who is not in charge. What and I who, really appreciate, go ahead. Yeah. Who's worthy and who's not worthy. Yeah. What I really appreciate about what you're saying is that it may not be one isolated event. Yeah. It's the exactly. accumulation of events and that our emotional memories, our bodies, we remember Absolutely. all of these things, even if it's not uh, cognitively at the forefront of Absolutely. our conscious thought, it's still there. One of the things that I always wonder about, is, is there a difference between, let's say, a wound and trauma, right? Like there's all kinds of negative experiences. What, what constitutes actual trauma? Yeah. Well, you know, generally with trauma, there's, we're dealing with um, ways in which you mentioned, like it, it affects our bodies in that way. So it's beyond just, we, we see these symptoms. Uh, a lot of the trauma talk comes out of working with uh, servicemen coming home from the war. And so they're dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. And so what they're seeing is that it's not just men and women coming from the war, but it's, it's individuals and racism is one of those. And so we see things like not being able to sleep, sleep disturbance, um, having, you know, being triggered, um, anxiety, fear, um, addictions, 
um, depression. Um, we, we see these things come up as a person that is grappling with these, again, ongoing cumulative experiences, and they are triggering, they are hurting, and they are harming people. Um, and, and, and in essence, makes it difficult to really navigate um, through life. Um, and yet, you know, I, I want to say that we are we're strong people, though, by God's grace, but it's damaging. And, and I think that, you know, if we actually understand that, um, and I'm saying to the majority culture, they're the majority now, <laughs> change in a while, but they're the majority and the majority culture of the, just that sense of how are people experiencing this? Can I have any level of empathy? And empathy has become a dirty word, which is ridiculous. You know, um, when I think about the whole thing about Jesus be understanding us and understanding of the wounds because he did it, although he didn't sin, there's a, that's empathy. That's, you, you know, and so having empathy for those who are in pain and those who are suffering um, would cause, you would hope, people to think differently about conversations such as CRT and, and what that is doing to people. The fact that we're even having this conversation about CRT post-2020, where it felt like, wow, things are shifting, maybe. Um, and it looked like, and, and in some ways, it feels like CRT is a backlash of that. Um, time period. And and that's doing more harm than good. Because when you get to a point where you've experienced this moral injury, you know, people were really devastated by the election in 2016, people, many people of color. Um, and then to have, you know, the, what seems like a shift happening, where it was like people were getting it, we thought, you know, they're reading the books, they're buying the books, you know, they're reading, they want to know. Um, and then to have this be the backlash that comes back behind it is so, so painful and so disturbing and, um, and frustrating and, and bub anger bubble bubbles up for folk and, and it's understandable. You are naming, I think, one of the most important reasons why we need to address the anti-CRT crusade. As you mentioned before, it's a distraction. I mean, it's not it, it, it's not what folks on the ground who are dealing with racial trauma are talking about, but it does have really negative impacts such as preventing conversations about racial trauma, preventing conversations about how to heal from that racial trauma. So it is an obstacle and an impediment to the progress that we all need to make. Absolutely. I'm wondering, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about, um, in particular, Christian institutions of higher education. Mm -hmm. In your view, is there anything distinctive about racial trauma as it happens in religious communities or faith communities? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think that, you know, when students come to college, you know, there's a set of expectations. You're obviously coming to learn. You're hopefully learning whatever the career is that you're going to go into. And so there's an element of vocational formation. And yet at the same time, it's a period of values clarification. It's a time when students are really grappling with, you know, this is how I was raised. What do I hold on to from my family, from my elders? Um, what is God calling me to do? What do I want? Um, and so they're being formed in one way or the other. And so 
in terms of colleges where um, rather than students being formed more into the image of Christ, um, students are seeing things or hearing things or feeling and experiencing things um, that in, in some ways are contrary to scripture um, and in many ways are. Um, where they may even see this elevation of white supremacy, where whiteness is really centered um, and it's their messages that this is what's important, this is what is valued. And the more, the closer you are to that center, um, the more access and privilege you're going to get. And so I think there are ways in which students get that message um, and it's a distorted formation. Um, you know, the reality is God created all of us and there's something that we all bring to the table. You know, God is the one who created melanin, <laughs> you know, he, he really did. Um, and it's good. So I think when we look at predominantly um, in these institutions, we see often like microaggressions that happen. And sometimes it's a once off thing. And sometimes, as I talked about before, it's ongoing, it's cumulative. And it, it ranges from being troubling to being terrifying. And, you know, and I think that it's important that we don't sit back and judge how a person is responding. You know, what matters is really how it affected the person, not our perceptions of whether well, that wasn't a big deal or it was or wasn't. That's good, yeah. Um, and so, you know, these microaggressions and sometimes macro ones happen inside the classroom, outside the classroom. It ranges from like open humiliation. Um, I've experienced that on the university level, you know, passive aggression, sometimes with professors, sometimes racial taunts from peers and, you know, whether it's on the playing field or whether it's in the dorms, like we're getting these messages, sometimes blatant, but sometimes it's more meta communication, you know, or rules about, again, like who's worthy for like how did you get here like you know were you on a scholarship or you know was your yeah were you worthy of admittance or a promotion um, i got asked when i was in college uh what sport did i play yes the assumption being as a black student at this predominantly white school now granted i i i used to be pretty athletic but i wasn't division one <laughs> university of notre dame athlete level uh but the presumption was oh you're black what what sport you must be here on a sports scholarship, yeah. not for your academics yeah yes exactly exactly and and i think the other thing that often happens is gaslighting and so when you have a student of color who has some kind of experience in the classroom or on the dorms or in relationship with fellow students, it's often said, well, that's not what they meant. That's not what he was thinking. That's not the, that's not the whole story. Or there's a minimizing it. You know, again, it's just like, well, that's, you really need to get over it. And maybe you just need to let that go. You need to forgive. Um, and I'm not, and I'm a big proponent of forgiveness. I am. However, not cheap, cheap grace, you know. Um, that's good. Yeah. You know, forgiveness without repentance, you know, is basically, you know, ultimately God is going to deal with the person. But I feel like in, in order for healing to happen, there has to be some level of repentance, turning around, going in a different direction, but also repair, repair the damage that was done. So students are dealing with this stuff on campus where, 
you know, and particularly Christian ones where it can be this whole cheap grace and like quick, like just forgive that professor, forget that. And okay, forgiveness happens over time. Um, but in order to take it seriously, again, to have authentic relationship, it has to be brought into the open. It needs to be discussed and we need to work through that. Um, and if repair needs to happen, it needs to happen. You touched on this a little bit before. First of all, you are <laughs> unearthing lots of memories for me. Sorry. <laughs> so we might have to have a counseling session right after this. Um, but, okay, so if I'm a student, particularly a student of color, a Black student on a campus like this, how do I know I'm experiencing racial trauma? How do I know maybe when it's time to get help? Yeah. I think that when you think about like some of the symptoms, you know, that I mentioned earlier, when you're starting to see that come up and, and oftentimes too, when people are experiencing trauma, they can tell themselves a story about it. Like, well, that's not really what that is or um, because they don't want to deal with the realities of that. And so I think it's really important if symptoms do come up, that you find someone that you can talk to and whether it's someone on campus or off campus, but someone that you can actually share and get some feedback from. And so maybe it's the church that you attend um, and there's pastor, the campus pastor or whoever, but somebody who's trustworthy. And you got to be careful at the same time, because the last thing you want is to be able to say something to someone who's going to gaslight you. So you want to, hopefully have that on campus. I know a lot of campuses have, you know, Alana groups or, um, you know, black student unions. It just depends on the school, but those are spaces where you can get feedback about, yes, that is what that is, you know, and, and that needs to be addressed. Um, but not to, not to minimize it, you not minimizing it, um, but to really examine it. Cause I think, too, just the ways in which we are brought up, we can easily buy into this notion of, you know, don't don't talk like, you know, we're told, like, keep this stuff in the house, you know, whatever right. happens in this house stays in the house. And yeah. so when we're confronted with something on the outside, we may tell ourselves the story like, oh, that's not what that is. Or I can't really talk about that. Um, but not talking about that creates a bit of harm, a huge bit of harm for for the student. And I would say also that for students of color and black students, um, if you've been raised in a, a, a faith community, a Christian community, a lot of times it's it's this sort of, um, you know, praying the hurt away. Right. Mm -hmm. you, you don't have enough faith. Just yeah. just believe, pray, leave it to God and all this will go away, yeah. um, which we're pro prayer. <laughs> the yeah. Prayer is a good thing. Yeah. But also God has given gifts of common grace to professionals like you who can help us walk through some of this healing. So I would just say that to students that first of all, you know, uh, being proactive about therapy, you don't have to wait until a crisis comes. Yeah. Uh, it's just part of good mental health care. Mm -hmm. um, the same way you would take care of your body and, and, and other aspects of your life. And the other aspect is it's not a lack of faith to go and seek help. Um, in fact, it can be a sign of wisdom and maturity. Absolutely. So, We've been talking a lot about racial trauma and, and immediately our minds go to black people, people of color. Can white people experience 
racial trauma and, and what might that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that, uh, I think that in some ways, you know, historically, um, I think some people experienced trauma and it was more, less racial, but more ethnic in terms of their coming to the U.S. And so they came with their trauma and, and there are ways in which they bought into this notion of whiteness. Uh, there's a book about when the Irish became white or something, when the Irish were black. I can't remember the name of it right now. But, but there are these ways in which um, there's just this, this sense of, I need to become bigger. I need to align as close to the center or be a part of the center um, because that's where the power is. I don't want to be stepped on like I was back in my home country. I'm trying to make a, a, a way for myself. So if I need to, you know, whatever, form union gangs or whatever I need to do, I'm going to become bigger. So I don't, I don't experience um, that trauma again. And so some of them initially came here and experienced a bit of trauma as they could got closer and closer to the center. Then they became white <laughs> and um, a lot of that fell away. And so I think that it, you know, they can experience it, but they can also be harmed by just the realities of the racial and trauma that others, uh, black folk and, and brown folk are experiencing. And I think about First Corinthians 12 and, you know, where there's a scripture that talks about the, the importance of all the parts of the body and that one part hurts and, you know, we're all affected. And so as believers, you know, if we're talking about Christians, um, you know, whether it's on college campuses or Christians in general, we can't just go, oh, I'm going to ignore the fact that my, you know, my ankle is broken. It's just not going to, you can't, How you can't walk. <laughs> you know, so if we actually took that to heart and thought about that clearly, then we would, now whether you think the ankle is faking it or not, your ankle is broken. <laughs> and when you step on it, you realize I can't really walk that far because my ankle, I need to tend to this. And so in that same way, there are people of color who have experienced trauma. They are in pain. What are you going to do about that? You can deny that the ankle is broken and eventually you will not be able to walk without crutches. Mm. Mm. And so I think that that's one consequence. consequence. I think um, I think it gives this distorted view of the importance of whiteness, and even if it's subconscious, over others. So there's a hierarchy, and whether people are aware of it or not, you know, I always say, you know what, people can say whatever they want, but the bottom line is when it comes to your birthday parties, your anniversaries, your weddings, et cetera, who shows up? That tells me who, who are your people, really? That's who right. really is a center? Who really is important? That's always telling for me, um, despite what people say. It's like, because those are your important events. You want the people that you think are important, that are closest to you. And don't, so don't give me the, I have a black friend. Don't, because that black friend is not at your party. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That, that, that black friend is more of an acquaintance and they may not even say we friends like that. So um, sometimes when people pop off at the mouth on social media, I go check, you know, their Facebook pages and their feeds for those events. Like you say, birthday parties, holidays, you know, these, these um, 
day to day kind of yeah. uh, family and close friends events, and it ain't no other kind of people there. Yeah. So it, they, they, it's so interesting to me that they have a lot to say about something they don't have any real yeah. meaningful personal experience with. That's that's really helpful. Um, let's talk about. Professor, one more thing. Other yeah, go for it. Is that I? I feel like one other piece that's really important is the issue around shame, and how denial leads to yes. shame. Yes, come on. It's, so they're connected. It's because of the shame. There's a denial of it. Like I don't want to, you know, I don't want my kid to look at a book that talks about CRT, because there's there's a shame about what happened over the past, and and in some ways, unfortunately, I think. Um, there are folk who are coming from other parts of the world, black folk, and the, and and they are like, well, so and so is doing fine, but the reality is they don't elicit shame. <laughs> They're not African American, so the shame of slavery doesn't come up, and so it's easier to deal with someone who's black from another part of the world, you know, because I don't have to deal with that when the reality is that the shame needs to be dealt with um, and looked at, addressed. Um, and if there's a need for repair, there needs to be repair because there were promises that were made to African-Americans post the civil war that were reneged upon. So what what's going to happen with that? Um, because I'm one, you know, in terms of vows, yes, yes, no, no. <laughs> You know, one or the other, not maybe, yeah. not I'm going to take that back. No. Yeah. And there are consequences to that. There are consequences to making promises and then not keeping it or having baggage that isn't resolved. Oh, that's such a critical point. I'm glad you brought it up. And again, this is why you need to get her book. She's got chapters on uh, freedom, resilience, shame, uh, going in depth uh, to these issues. And what you're bringing up about this, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no, uh, promises being reneged upon. I, I feel like a major issue in this whole anti-CRT crusade is institutional betrayal. Yes. That these Christian institutions promised to shape and form you and help you become more like Christ. Yeah. But then they don't deliver on these promises. And matter of fact, do, do positive harm. Because they're denying the importance of that, that race and racism play in the world. They're denying how um, Christians and even their own institutions have played into this. And then uh, a student there across racial and ethnic spectrum would easily come away feeling a sense of betrayal from their institute. And that's a really, really hard thing to deal with, process, and get over. So yeah, what are some absolutely. things that institutions can do? Um, what, are, what are some institutional responses to help heal racial trauma? Yeah. You know what? I, one of the things I write about in the book was the whole notion of a moral injury and, and that institutions like the church or even a Christian university and college, like we come at the, into those spaces with a set of expectations. You know, we read scripture, we see, okay, the character of Jesus, how Jesus he engaged with the marginalized, how he engaged with people who are in pain and in even the religious authority. And so when we come with that set of expectations um, and then have it dashed, you know, where we're blatantly confronted with racism or even if it's subtle, 
there's a harm that happens where then we question um, the, at worst, where is God? Because if we're really even centering God in whiteness, <laughs> you know, we can then have that sense of like, well, you know, where is God and or Christianity is a white man's religion. That's another one. Um, or we think about, you know, what, what do I need to do? I, I think to actually heal from, from this, um, what, what are the steps that I need to do to begin to, to have some level of recovery from this disappointment? And sometimes it does mean, it does mean a moving away from it. Um, yeah. sometimes it means a com- confronting of it because oftentimes with racial trauma, there's a silencing. And so it's a speaking up. It's students coming together and saying, no, we're not, you know, you know, you have had conversations with students. I certainly have. I've spoken at many different Christian colleges and universities and, and students, and not just black and, and brown students, but students across the board have had questions about, well, what do I need to do? How do I move forward in terms of, you know, loving God with all my heart, mind and soul and loving my neighbor? as myself. And so what does loving my neighbor look like? How do I advocate for the students of color on this campus um, and to come alongside and support them? And so I've seen some good work that has been done in terms of, of students on campuses, you know, saying, okay, you know what, we're going to, one college has something called Dear Neighbor. And it really is looking at who are the, you know, my neighbor is everybody. <laughs> There are people that I wouldn't, yeah. you know, I, I might have some historical judgment around, Are they? My, but they're my neighbor. So how do I treat them with dignity because we're created in the image of God? Um, what does that look like? And, um, and so they've created these spaces for that, for dialogue, for challenging one another. Um, I think that's colleges and universities creating, allowing for space like that, allowing for voices like yours to come on campus and to talk and to begin to discuss things. We, you know, this is not, you know, you're not in a monastery or cloistered or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's like you're bringing in a voice that even if your donors are not okay with it, or there's a segment of the parents who are not okay talking about history, those discussions are important because in terms of formation, your students are going out there. They're going to live in the real world. And they're going to have these discussions. And so if you're not able to have these discussions now and don't want to, you're really setting them up for failure, actually. That's right. That's right. And so so there has to be this sense of universities really looking at, well, what, what are you trying to do by silencing the conversation, ultimately? Um, and so I would recommend that colleges really look at the ways in which they're behavior and actions has actually uh, caused racial trauma and caused harm. And what do they need to do moving forward so that all of the students feel like this is the beloved community and we're all here together. We, and, and we're working it out. It's messy. You know, people are going to make mistakes and step on toes or whatever. But, you know, if we come at this with repentance and when we need to turn around and go in an opposite direction to do that. Um, we're not, I mean, as I said earlier, scripture is just littered with, remember this, celebrate that. 
remember some difficult things. Look at this lineage. It's, it's a hot mess, you know, but we're, but all of that's part of the story. And we've got to look at that and face it. We can't avoid it. I love what you're saying, because essentially you're just you're saying like this effort to address racial trauma and racial justice is integral to the mission of it, an institution of higher education. It's Absolutely. integral to preparing students for the present and the future, which, you know, if you're going to be a student centered educational institution, that should be a no brainer. Well, we are going to leave the people wanting more <laughs> because uh, this is such a rich conversation and we could go on. And I know people are going to want to keep in touch with you and keep the conversation going. So tell us a little bit about what you're working on now and also how folks can follow you and, and keep up with your work. Yeah. So I, you mentioned healing racial trauma. So I, that book was released in 2020. Young, Gifted, and Black, A Journey of Lament and Celebration came out in February. So I'm in the middle of that whole thing. It's been just a crazy kind of a year. Um, and I have, uh, I'm in two uh, anthologies. One is a um, Voices of Lament, which is edited by Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. So I'm in that. And this it's amazing women of color writers talking about lament and hope. And so again, that's Voices of Lament. And then the other one is more of an academic piece, but it's by um, uh, Sean and Marlena Graves, and it's the Gospel of Peace in a Violent World. So I have an essay in that as well. So those are the two things. I'm social media, it's at Sheila Wise Row across the board. And then uh, my website is SheilaWiseRow.com. Thank you for shepherding us on this journey of healing from racial trauma. I said at the top um, that I can sense people are going to get healed and get free as a result of your words and your wisdom. So we thank you so much for joining us on Those Meddling Kids. Thank you. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.